Well, good morning, church family. It is, uh, it's good to be with you and, and always uh, good to sing of God's goodness, um, that, that surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life by his grace because of his kindness to us. Well, as we uh, continue in Luke's gospel, uh, we find ourselves finally in chapter three. We made it. Uh, we made it through chapter one and two. And yeah, that's a, a, you, you did it. You, you did it. You made it. Um, so here we are. We're going we're gonna to be at the beginning of chapter three. Some of the chapters will go a little faster than one and two did now that we're, now that we're into chapter three. Um, well, when I was in college, I, I learned fairly quickly that I was not yet skilled in the art of keeping a clean room. Uh, my wife would now be the best judge as to whether I have improved in this arena. <laughs> but, when you, but when you stick two 18-year-old young men uh, in a dorm or an apartment, uh, it, it just takes a little while. It takes a little while for you to find your stride. It was in those college years that I learned that an empty pizza box is not a suitable decorative accessory for the living room. Who knew? I had to learn it there. Uh, I also found out that dishes uh, don't go away when you put them in the sink. Like they don't just end up somewhere clean in, in a cabinet somewhere. You actually have to do something. There's another step in between. Um, I had been taught that my whole life, but for some reason, I guess I, it took me being on my own to learn it. Um, there's something about living on your own that really helps to cement these teachable moments. Um, but there's perhaps no greater teacher than the first time your parents call and say, hey, we're coming to town. Oh boy. We'll, we'll meet at your apartment tonight. How about that? Oh man. Let the festival of preparations commence. Uh, and, and crack open that unopened bottle of toilet cleaner and enjoy. Go to town. Uh, it's time for a reclamation project. In our chapter today, we're introduced to the ministry of John the Baptist. And there has been much dirt and grime and unfaithfulness run amok in Israel. And along comes John the Baptist and says, prepare the way of the Lord. Oh boy, the Lord is stopping by. We've got some stuff to clean up. But how does one prepare themselves for an arrival of such magnitude? Is it possible? And does the occasion even call for such a renovation project? Or is there something even better than that? And so as we are introduced this morning to the ministry and message of John the Baptist, I want us to see four things. Number one, the word comes to the wilderness. Number three, we need more than a bath. Number three, the better at baptism. And number four, prepare the way. Let me pray once more for us. Father, we need ears to hear. We need hearts to receive Apart from your work and your spirit applying the truth of, of, of the scriptures to our life, we, we, won't, we won't change. We won't hear. We won't worship. Oh, but God, by your grace, by, with your help, with your spirit at work, we will hear. We might, 
respond. God, would you do that today? And would we not just be hearers, but would we be doers? Would we be those who, who see and respond and worship our King Jesus? And so lead us to him, exalt him. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, number one, the word comes to the wilderness. As we began here in uh, verse one of chapter three, Amy Flowers did a great job. That was a lot of names in there. Um, so thank you for doing that. Um, she asked me ahead of time if it was okay that she had a Dallas Cowboy shirt on because I didn't ask her until this morning. And um, I said, it's totally fine for church. I don't know about your soul. I think it's the more concerning part, but um, sorry, sorry, Cowboys fans. Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, all right, so let's start in verse one, chapter three. Uh, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysan, I have a part time too, Amy, Lysanias, I think, tetrarch of Abilene, I know that one. Uh, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. So here we are, Luke is saying, okay, let's fast forward the story. Let's speed up and, and, and get to where the story really gets going. If this were a movie, Jesus has thus far been played by a baby uh, and then a young boy. Um, and, and now, in this, as the scene has faded off on Jesus, the boy, the, this next scene fades in on Jesus's cousin, John, and, and they're both full-grown men now. And the rest of Luke will be pretty much chronological from here on. And like a new chapter in the story, these first verses serve as kind of the rolling Star Wars credits, catching us up to speed, getting us, pick, where, where are we at? Here's where we're at. Uh, this is likely 17 or 18 years after Jesus uh, as a boy. And, and here's, here's the scene. We're gonna get some historical names and dates. Uh, these are some of the power players you're gonna see through Luke, through the life of Jesus. First, we meet the new Caesar, Tiberius. Augustus had died during Christ's childhood, and so Tiberius, his adopted son, is now in power. So going forward, anytime Caesar is mentioned in Luke, uh, it's Tiberius. He rules over Rome. Uh, then we meet Pontius Pilate and Herod. Uh, spoiler alert, we're gonna hear from these guys again a little bit later uh, in the book of Luke at the end. And lastly, we meet Annas, uh, the, the revered former high priest in Jerusalem, and his son Caiaphas. So, so we get this cascading uh, list of the power structure of the day. The ruler of the empire, Tiberius. The regional governors, Pilate, Herod, and others. And then the religious leaders, Annas and Caiaphas. And in the midst of this power structure, check out this line at the end of verse 2. God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Which impressive figure received God's word for the people? A long-haired dude in the wilderness, which is pretty much the pattern in Luke, right? That's what we've seen so far, isn't it? Uh, an angel brings the news of the Messiah to who? To a teenage girl and to a barren couple. The message of peace on earth comes to dirty shepherds out in the wilderness, out in the countryside. And, and now, in the wilderness, he's preparing, uh, as he's preparing for ministry, God's word comes to John. Now, this, this phrasing, the word of the Lord, is not a small thing. 
Uh, this alerts us to something about John. We're, we're to see his ministry as, as being in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets who had spoken on behalf of God. And about the, the, they would speak of, of, of the future for Israel and, and the coming Messiah. In fact, John is, is the most blessed of all the prophets. He's like the dude in the opening ceremonies of the Olympics who actually gets to carry the torch into the stadium. Everybody else has been passing it along, but here he comes and he gets to see the inside of the stadium. And so what does John do? Verse three, he went into all the vicinity of the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the, for the, give, uh, for the forgiveness of sins. This was the message of John. He was the quintessential traveling preacher who really only had one sermon. In fact, in a couple verses, John himself is gonna quote Isaiah and basically call himself a voice. I'm just a voice. I'm not that important. I got one song, one sermon, and it's this, repent because Jesus is coming. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness, repentance, over and over. This is his message. We read his words in Matthew's gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And as he called men and women to repentance, he baptized them. And you may wonder, well, why? Why did he baptize people? Um, I, I kind of understand Christian baptism, uh, what that means. It's for those who believe. But what is the reasoning here? Um, well, before we have the fuller picture that we have now of Christian baptism, showing Christ's death and resurrection and the new life that we have in him. Jewish baptisms were a ritualistic cleaning uh, for those who were converting from pagan religions. This was a symbolic washing uh, 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 from the old way of life. But perhaps most striking here is that John's audience was mostly Jewish. Ethnic Jews didn't usually need to be baptized. This was only for those who were unclean for Gentiles who were converting from paganism. But just as Jesus was going to do in his ministry, and we'll see in Luke, John often deals in strong words toward his own people, particularly toward those who fancy themselves as the spiritual elite. He looks at God's chosen nations, his chosen nation, and he's just kicking their legs out from underneath them. In verse four, we read, as it's written in the, in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, this is what he's saying, quoting Isaiah. He says, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. John's saying, that's me. That's who I am. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight. The rough ways smooth and everyone will see the salvation of God. What a picture, right? Uh, John is taking Isaiah's words written about the entrance of a king and he's applying them to the entrance of the Messiah. He's saying, prepare the way, roll out the red carpet, meet him outside of, outside of town and, and get the convoy out in front of him. And if, if the convoy comes upon any bumps in the road, smooth them out. If, if they come across any holes in the ground, fill them in. We don't want his chariot dipping down in any holes. Fill it in, smooth it out, make way. The king of glory is rolling into town. Prepare the way. And when he's here, everyone will see his salvation. Everyone will see God's glory. Not just the Jews. Isaiah said all flesh will see it. So people, get ready. 
Number two, we need more than a bath. So, so what would your response be if you knew the Messiah was coming? The one who will read is carrying a winnowing shovel, the one who is perfect in power, who will set the prisoner free, the judge of the nations of the earth. I mean, if an Old Testament prophet shows up and says, the kingdom of God is near, then it's time to clean up. Right? It's time to get the apartment straightened up. And not just like around the furniture, it's time to scoot the furniture out from the wall. That, behind that couch is a lot of stuff you don't know is back there. Sweep it out, get it clean. He's coming. Straighten up, smooth out the rough spots so that you can gladly welcome the Lord. And as these God-fearing Jewish people heard the words of the prophet Isaiah, as the Spirit spoke through the wild man, John the baptizer, verse seven says the crowds did come. They showed up. And so what did John do when he saw the people responding to the message of repentance? Did he say, okay, I see you coming. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I see that hand. All you gotta do is walk on up. Just walk the aisle, come to the waters. They're ready for you. He'll make you new. No, in, in true fashion, as the prophet of God, uh, John perceives the hearts of the people. He knew they didn't understand who it was they were dealing with. And instead of encouraging them into the water, no, he, he looks at the crowds coming in droves and, and look at his encouraging words for them in verse seven. He then said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Whoa, hold up, John. This is not in the church growth manual. Uh, this is not how you build your critical mass. Sons of snakes. That's not a good way to start with anybody. He starts to roast them. This is Lucy inviting Charlie up to kick the ball, right? And then, oh, sorry, moved to the last second. Uh, what are you doing? What's happening here? Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? You did, John. You just invited us. But, we, but he sees through them. He sees the insincerity of their coming. You're just a wrath fleer. You're looking for the escape hatch. You're looking for the insurance policy. But you don't know who we're talking about. We're talking about the Messiah. And if you want to gladfully receive him as he comes, you need much more than a bath. You must repent. You have to turn from idols. You want to make straight the pathway of the Lord? You need to see your sin. You need to see the crooked places. And so he begins to elaborate on exactly what this repentance will look like. You see, you can't just turn toward the Lord without repenting. Have you ever tried to do this? Uh, God, I, I'm recommitting. It's just you and me. I'm gonna take you seriously now. I'm really gonna seek after you. I'm, I'm wholeheartedly pursuing you now. I don't really want to think about all the other stuff I've already, I've done here. I'm just going to leave that and ignore it and focus on you, God. No, faith in Christ and repentance, turning from sin 
is, this is two sides of the same coin. To turn to the Lord, we have to turn away from sin. This is what faithful preaching and what faithful rebuke from brothers and sisters does. It says to us, turn away from idols and trust again in the name of the Lord. If you kick your friends to the curb when they call you out on your sin, if you justify when they point to your pride, you're undercutting the very pathway to faith, the very roadway to fellowship with God. And perhaps the most oft-quoted of his 95 theses, Martin Luther wrote, uh, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Luther spoke of repentance, this seeing and, and, and acknowledging the truth about ourselves and faith, this believing and acknowledging the truth about God, that we're turning from our, our, the sin and our own nature and turning to and placing faith in God. Verse nine, he says to them, therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. Repentance leads to a faith that is alive, that's therefore fruitful. And I love how John goes straight to the old fruit that many Jews may have pointed to. They might have said, hey, look, look at who we are. Look at our position. Look at our ethnicity. John, you can't keep us from coming to the Lord. We're the, the chosen sons of Abraham. And John just, he cuts them off before they can even say it. He says there in the second part of verse eight, he says, and don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children from Abraham from these stones. This is, this is pretty crazy language to them. So wait, you're saying, John, that, that being a Jew doesn't matter anymore? We are the chosen children of God. You're saying God could just raise up other chosen ones as his sons, as his children? We are the family tree, John. Bet you didn't know that, John. We are the ones that God planted, our nation, our family. We, are to, we were to be the tree beneath which all nations would come and find shade. And John just decimates their nationalistic pride. He says in verse nine, the ax is already at the roots of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John was saying the very, the very identity, the very thing that you've identified yourself with that you thought made you right with God, you thought you were accepted by him because of your family, because of your lineage, you missed it. You missed it. That's never what has pleased God. What has always pleased him is repentance and faith. A broken spirit and a contrite heart you will receive. Number three, the better baptism. And so they ask the all important question now. Verse 10 what then should we do? That's what the crowds ask. What, should, what do we do? 
What, what do we do then, John? So you're, you're seeing through our pride. So what will it actually look like if we really do repent? You're saying our problems are deeper than a little bath. We have issues down to the core of who we are. So, so how do we bear fruit? How can we be alive? How can we be fruitful? Which is quite a question. And I think John's answer is fascinating. It seems like he does a little end around here. He kind of starts, I think, with the ending. He's going to address their deeper issues in a minute. He's going to address the new life that they need, the heart of faith that Christ will bring by his spirit to those who repent and those who believe. But first, he's going to show them, here's what it's going to look like. Here's what the life of repentance and faith can actually look like. He's, he's kind of casting some vision for him. Here's what your life could be like. Here's what fruitful life with Jesus could look like. So he just starts naming some practical scenarios and some different types of people as he identifies them. In verse 11, he replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none. And the one who has food must do the same. And keep in mind, this, this wasn't new. Uh, this had always been God's commands to his people. Care for the poor. Care for the marginalized, the hungry, the needy. Verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He told them, don't collect any more than what you have been authorized. Again, this is in line with what God had always commanded in the law. Don't steal from one another. Verse 14, some soldiers also questioned him. What should we do? He said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. Notice John doesn't tell the soldiers to stop working for Rome. Rather, he just says, carry out your orders fairly without intimidating people. Be content with what you have. Don't be greedy and, and steal more. So what does the life of repentance and faith look like? It prioritizes the needy. It isn't partial or dishonest. It treats people fairly. It isn't greedy. Taking by force, but rather finds contentment in what God has given. But look, let's, let's, let's not kid ourselves with this. this. This isn't something new to them. This isn't a new teaching on Repentance. John is simply reiterating the law that they already knew. And I think as they heard this, there has to be a little of, John, I mean, we, we know this. Like, we already know that. Is that all you've got for us? You're just gonna show us how we've consistently failed to keep the law? We already knew this. We already knew the law. So thanks for showing us where we've failed it. How can we actually fix it, though? And I think that's why we don't see wholesale repenting and rejoicing right here. Look in verse 15, it says, now the people were waiting expectantly and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether, whether John might be the Messiah. And I think they have to be going, surely there's more. Surely the Messiah is gonna give us more than try harder, do better. And in verse 16, John answers them, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I am is coming, 
I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. And John is gonna say similar things again and again. We see in, in all of the gospel accounts, I'm not a Messiah. That's not me. I'm not him. Yes, I can baptize you with water. I can speak God's words to you. I can even help you see your sin. But I can't give you a new heart. And, and I, I feel this as, as one of your pastors. I feel this a lot. Like, I can speak God's word to you. And many of you speak God's word to me. We can encourage one another. We can call each other to repent of sin and to turn to the Lord. But you need more than that. When, I, when I'm driving south on, on the 249 feeder road and I cross over Spring Cypress, uh, pretty soon I can see it coming up on the right. You may know what I'm talking about. Uh, there's, a, there's a little sign and a building, a couple of buildings, but the, the really important one uh, is Lupe. It's there. Like you, you know the drive. You've probably made the exit. You've crossed over Spring Cypress. That's really the way in. Um, but unless I turn into the parking lot, unless I walk inside and partake of that amazing beef fajita meat, there's really nothing fulfilling about the sign. But oh, if you'll just go in, go do it, go in. If you just taste and see. And, and that's our prayer as, as pastors here is that we will be the giant flashing arrows pointing to the true bread, pointing to the source of life, pointing to the true chief shepherd, the true chief pastor. Your pastors, your friends, your small group leaders, these are really poor substitutes for the Savior. He is the one with true power. But we need each other so that we might point one another to him. May your pastors decrease so that he might increase. May we each point one another to him. And this is what John says to the crowds. He's saying, I've given you teaching. I've shown you his word, but you need the one with power. You need the one about whom he says at the end of verse 16, he says, I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's what you need. He can do the purifying work that you need. He, he will change you. He can do something way deeper than a washing. And John's saying, I, I'm not that guy. I'm not the one that can do that. I am no Messiah. I am no savior. But the Messiah is near. And this is the good news. And so here he comes in, in verse 17 and, and, and his, the appearing of the Messiah as he describes him, it doesn't actually sound like good news. Look in verse 17, he says, his winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Then along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed good news to the people. Oh, I, I, can, we, 
Like, can we have that? Like, did he, is this, was this the good news? Like, is, he got, is there more to it? This, this sounds like judgment. So how is judgment part of the good news? Well, let's, let's go to the metaphor. When the judge, the harvester comes, he's coming for the crop. Not for the dead parts, the chaff or the husks. You know, he's coming for the part that is useful, that's fruitful, that's alive. I mean, it's, it's not like there's a category of wheat that is neutral. No, it's either the crop is either alive and it's useful or it's not. It's either bearing fruit springing from a living plant or the plant has died. And when he comes, he won't place the dead plants in a shadow box so that he can look at them. Like they, they don't, they're not useful there, right? He, no, the, the chaff, the husks, the dead plants, these parts are useless now and they must be separated and removed and burned up. And this may sound cruel, but this is, this is reality. That all of humanity was planted by God in the garden of this world. Instilled with a purpose to display the image of God in the world. To produce the fruit of faithfulness. To produce the fruit of righteousness. And even in, in, our, in our sin nature, when the mark is missed, to produce the fruit of repentance. So, so what is the aim uh, of, of one uh, whom the Lord plants? What is the deepest longing of such a plant? It, it's to be alive, to live, to be connected to the source of life, to be truly alive. This is, this is our purpose, our design, life. So it isn't, it isn't painful to hear about the coming judgment because the sower is coming uh, to harvest those he's planted here to receive them. That's good news. And it must bring about in us humility and, and a desire to know the answer to the question, Lord, how, how can I be alive when you come? And this is what the people wanted to know. If the Messiah is coming and, and he's going to bring with him the judgment of God, how can we be those who are alive? How can we be alive when he finds us? How, how will we not be among the dead plants with the withered husks laying on the ground? And this is the good news that John could bring and that we know now. He, he may, John may not have known in full uh, what, what we even know now, what the apostle Paul knew when he described this in Romans chapter eight, but, but it's, it is the hope he was proclaiming and it is the hope that we have. Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 3, he says, For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. And then later down in the same chapter in verse 10, he says, Now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. This is what Jesus, our Messiah, brought. He brought life. John said, just, just wait. The very one coming to judge, the very one that, that has a winnowing shovel in his hand, he is the very one who by his death and resurrection, he's the one who'll actually give life too. He'll make you alive. That's what Jesus said to his disciples in John 15. He told them that not only is the father, my father, the sower, but he says in verse five, I'm the vine. 
You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So, so yes, the fruit of repentance looks like generosity. It looks like giving a shirt, giving food. Yes, being truly alive and bearing fruit looks like contentment. But hear this, fruit does not grow on a dead branch. I can, I can take an apple and pin it to a tree and yet no, no matter how appetizing the fruit or how beautiful such a flower might be on, on, that you would pin on. The, the, the plant is dead. Life is not caused by fruit. No, fruit comes from life. And we need to be alive. But, but the problem is that the dead can't bring themselves to life. All of us. All of us found ourselves in a state of being dead in our law-breaking, in our hatred, in our selfishness, in our sin. Apart from Christ, you were in a spiritual state of death and decay, ready for the fire. But, but God, but God, by his grace, he makes you alive together with Christ. Have you trusted him? Have you trusted him to do that in your life, to make you alive? John's ministry of repentance really was an exercise in pointing to the death and decay and saying, oh, but get ready. But get ready. Life is coming to make dead trees alive. Don't, don't cling to your lineage for life. Don't look to Father Abraham for life. Don't look to the self-righteousness of your own works. No, these are dead ends. These are dead trees and the ax is at the tree about to bring such feeble attempts at righteousness to the ground. Now the one who will change you from the inside is coming. And, and Christian, for us, he has come. And he makes dead hearts beat again. He brings the fruit of new life where there was once a dead branch, a dead tree. And so I, I, have, I must ask that for us, like for those who are here today, is that you, has Christ made you alive? And, and, and I'm, I'm gonna, I'll do what John did, just quickly interrupted his listeners. I'll just quickly interrupt you. So don't say, well, yeah, I'm alive, look at me. I, I'm a good husband, or I'm a good wife. Look at all the serving I do. Look at all the sins of the flesh that I, I've been avoiding. Look, look at me. I, I'm, I'm here today. I'm at church. I'm attending church. Look at my church attendance. Look, I lead a Bible study. But have you trusted Jesus to forgive you? Have you, have you gone to him for life that you cannot give to yourself? Have you turned from sin and been joined to the vine? Apart from Jesus, all of that other striving, it's dead. 
It's dead works. It's like apples pinned up on a dead tree. If you've never trusted him, come to the Lord Jesus today. Come to him and, and, and you don't have to be ashamed anymore. You don't have to be exhausted from all of your constant self-improvement projects. You don't have to be worn out from trying to clean yourself up so that he might receive you. You can't clean yourself up enough for him to receive you. He has to do the work. He has to do the washing. He has to change you from the inside. He will do it. He'll forgive you. He'll give you rest. He'll make you alive. Call upon the name of the Lord and, and you will be saved. And, and if that's you and you're, you want to know how to do that, come talk to one of us after the service. Jesus wants to receive you. He will receive you. And then number four, prepare the way. Maybe you're a Christian and you began in grace, but along the way you stopped, you stopped finding your life in Jesus. Maybe you, maybe you trusted Christ, you saved by his grace, but, but you find yourself apathetic toward him. You feel distant or removed from him. Pursuing his presence feels like a chore. Desire for him feels weak. You feel like you're churning your wheels trying to make him happy with you. And yet the weight of old sin patterns just keep plaguing you. I, Christian, I, I believe that God's, or that John's words here are still applicable. Repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. That's not, that, those are not words that are harsh. Those are words of life. Turn from sin. Turn from death. And turn to Christ. Turn to life. Prepare the way of the Lord. Every low valley of our estimation of God must be filled up. Prepare the way of the Lord. Every lofty mountain of our pride must be struck down. Prepare the way of the Lord. Every crooked path of sin and self-exaltation must be repented of and straightened. Prepare the way of the Lord. And every rough place of self-pity and doubt and despair must be smoothed out. Prepare the way of the Lord. If you are in Christ, he has forgiven you. He is changing you. He has sealed you. And he will come to gather you Prepare the way of the Lord. Jesus didn't grant you life by his power so that you might live in yours. No, it's, it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. So repent of sin, turn to him and experience life again. The fruit of righteousness will come in your life as you cling and abide in the vine. Cling to him. As we close, I want to, list, I want to read out a, 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 how Spurgeon said this, this very thing as he spoke of preparing the way uh, for Christ in the heart of a believer. He said, may I give him a, a road into my heart, cast up by gracious operations through the desert of my nature. Stumbling blocks of sin must be removed and thorns and briars of rebellion uprooted. 
So great a visitor must not find miry ways and stony places when he comes to honor his favored ones with his company. Oh, that this evening the Lord may find in my heart a highway made ready by his grace, that he may make a triumphal progress through the utmost bounds of my soul. May we commune with him. He will, he will clear the path. He has come to us. We did not come to him. We didn't make the path straight enough so that God could come to us. That's not how we got into this, this thing called Christianity and that is not how we will live in it. He will help us. He will clean it up. So let's repent of sin and let's turn to him. Pray with me. Father, we are so thankful so grateful that there is no amount of striving, no amount of of self-perfecting and renovation of of our own uh, life that will ultimately, that will satisfy the righteous requirement that you have. But we thank you that, that Jesus is the righteous one. And that in your mercy, you are making dead people alive, that you're making unrighteous ones righteous, that you're, that you're giving us your grace and that, that by your grace, as we turn from sin, that we experience fellowship with you. So Father, today, would you draw those to yourself who don't know you? Would you help them to come to you for life? And would you help those of us who do, Father, would you... Would you help us to cling to nothing but Christ and him crucified, his grace in our life. So Father, bring about fruitful life, fruitful repentance. This is your work in our heart, God. Would you, would you, would you be faithful to complete the work that you've begun? So we love you. I pray this in Christ's name.